Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to the second episode of Toronto Under Construction. And thanks again to our sponsor, Cameron Stevens Mortgage Capital. In the first episode, we talked a little bit about our experience in the real estate industry. In this second episode, we're going to talk a little bit about financing and the rental apartment market. Maybe just for like one second, just give us the difference between debt and equity. Sure. And what and what you guys do most sure, of. Sure. And I think I think what, yeah, you're right. We want this podcast to appeal to everybody and we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about some very detailed topics and get into the weeds on a lot of things, but also we'll we'll try our best to uh, to take a step back out of it and try and you know not use acronyms maybe. So <laughs> I talk a lot about things like L T V and L T C and residual L T V and um, We'll, 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 we'll try and make a call. You know, what, we'll, what we should say is hit us up on Twitter if you find that we're using too many acronyms or if we're using too many terms that you may not be familiar with because we're, we're happy to define them and walk you through exactly what they are. But it, I think that's important and defining what equity is and the structure of a capital stack versus the debt and where that all lines up. I think we can... Uh, yeah, I think I, I think we're going to try to do some some blogs where maybe link to some of the things that we talked about. If there's sure. a specific story or, sure. or a specific sure. report that came yeah. out that yeah. we that we're chatting about, and I think uh, um, yeah, we're throwing some uh, some links to yeah. some definitions. Yeah, or so something. we actually did a uh, <clears throat> we did a presentation yesterday. We're raising money uh, for a new fund that we have uh, recently launched called a called the Cameron Stevens High Yield Mortgage Trust, and we have a, a slide deck about a capital stack and exactly what financing goes into building any given building. Um, so there are two pieces, or there's three pieces, or there's a number of pieces actually, if you really break it down. Um, but the two big ones that you asked about are debt and equity. So essentially the easiest way to explain it on, on, a, on a super simple basis is if you're buying your personal house for a hundred bucks and you go to the bank and the bank is willing to give you $75 to finance the house, uh, they call that 75% loan to value, so 75% uh, is debt, and the balance of that, the 25%, would be your equity. So the equity is the uh, is the cash, typically the cash cash that the borrower puts into the project, and the debt is the financing provided by the institution, be it a bank or someone like Cameron Stevens. Does that answer your question? Well, that's perfect. But uh, uh, I guess you know there's guys out there that provide equity for development projects. So so essentially they're providing the developer with the 25 percent or the upfront. I guess yeah, for sure. And I look project. forward to to bring a, there's a few major players in the city that do that, and we'll we'll bring them on uh, as guests. Um, the difference essentially, if you if you you know debt has a charge on title and equity doesn't. Yeah. Historically speaking, if you provide debt. You're taking a charge, and you have a uh, security, a piece of security against that, you know, a legal piece of security against that piece of land. Whereas if you're providing equity, it's unregistered, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's more of an agreement between you and the developer as to how the financial uh, structure of the deal is going to work out, who's going to put the money in, when they're going to put it in, and and most importantly, when they get their money out. So who gets it out first and how much and, and how that cash flow takes place. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And how, how do you, I, I guess one thing I'm always interested in is, is you have your rates, but how do you adjust those rates if someone's like maybe a new developer or this is their first project? Like how do you, you know, underwrite a deal with someone that has no track record? 
Uh, we could have a whole we could have a whole podcast <laughs> on that topic. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on a lot of these topics. Um, historically speaking, the uh, the big five banks are uh, gener- are generally attracted to developers who have a have a track record, who've been building for a number of years, and who have an established. Uh, a list of projects they've completed. Typically, you know, the banks want astute, sophisticated borrowers who perform on time, on budget, and have done that multiple times. So when a new builder walks into the TD office and asks them for a loan, uh, one of the first questions is, you know, give me your resume, what have you done, and how many times have you done it? Um, we've done a lot of business with first or second time builders. We've helped a lot of builders who are sort of on the younger end of the age spectrum get started in the business and yeah does pricing uh, need to be adjusted accordingly sometimes absolutely i would is it is it drastic and does it you know prohibit the project from going forward i'd say no but it's all it's all based on on who it is you know what their background is what kind of team they're building around them are they bringing professionals to the table are they bringing you know First time people to the table, right? There's yeah. some there's some great uh, construction managers out there and some great builders out there that have worked with first time builders, and I think that helps mitigate a lot of the risk. And you know, who are they getting? Who's doing their cost consulting? Are they getting you know one of the two or three, four or five most reputable groups? Or are they getting someone no one's heard of? Who's doing their architects? Who's their engineer? And on and on it goes, right? Yeah. I, I could I could list out all the major um, consultants that they need to. To work with that make a project move and uh, you know as long as they build a good team around them and they're astute and they have the ability to perform or we believe they do then you know we find a way to help them get the deal done nice and we've uh, you know this industry in Toronto ever since I've been in it has been obviously fairly strong you know we had uh, you know a dip in 2009 we maybe had a tiny little dip in 2013 right so but generally speaking our entire careers this market has been strong but I mean there's obviously a, a few failures out there maybe maybe tell us about uh, you know I don't to give the specific of the location and stuff but tell me a bit about maybe a couple of projects that went sideways for for you and maybe what you what you learned about them or what, what did you say okay well I'm not gonna do that again uh, that's a that's a good question and I'll, I'll, I'll flip it back to you after I answer it because <laughs> I think that uh, from just from a research standpoint obviously you know you look at the trends and you have probably <clears throat> you get to see the leading indicators as to what drove those two uh, dips in 09, 13, and I'd even say potentially in, in the last 16 to 18 months in the low-rise low business, rise, sure. it, yeah. there, there's been a major dip in pricing. Um, the market has softened completely in the 905, especially in sort of north and east 905. Um, and, and have we been involved in some of those projects? Yeah, for sure. Have we lost money no we we've typically dealt with people who are able to carry themselves through the times that are a bit slower and that's part of our run underwriting that we do do we look at um you know just like the banks just like you read in the paper we do stress tests on on pricing and and we underwrite our pricing much different than the developer may underwrite their pricing Mm -hmm. so for that reason we've been able to stay pretty safe we've uh Generally speaking, as much as we're a secondary or an alternative lender, the bank or a mez lender, as some may uh, coin that term or phrase with Cameron Stevens, we we definitely play on the conservative side of the spectrum and uh, haven't been involved in too many deals that 
almost any deals really that have gone sideways. Yeah. Um, some have some have slowed down, and that's that's what about you from, from your perspective. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not, the, the market has been strong. I agree, and and for for guys that, like you and I who are uh, under fifty. Well, under 50, um, you know, a lot of the, those in this industry over 50 kind of look at us and say, oh, you, you haven't been through the hard times and it's coming. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. Yeah. Uh, does that worry you? Are you concerned about that? It's, do, you, it's interesting. do you look for you know, indicators? When I was, when I was, you know, uh, just a researcher and I was, you know, I was naive. You see a building get built and you assume, oh, the developer must have made a lot of money. Look at the kind of car he's driving. But the kind of car that someone's driving is definitely not a reflection of how much money that they have. <laughs> That's for sure. And that was, I actually just got back from a couple of meetings in Alberta and everybody drives a Ford 150 <laughs> and you have, that is not an indicator <laughs> of success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a baseline. Yeah. So, see, I was shocked when I, when I spoke to, uh, you know, one a major developer and, and he told me, yeah, that 20% of the deals, they lose money. Right. And I was like, really? Like you guys are one of the biggest developers out there. And he's like, yeah, I mean, that's just the way it is. Two of them, we just absolutely smash out of the park and, and the rest in the middle are just decent deals where we make an all right return. Do you think, do you think that's still the case? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe that's an isolated case, but uh, I mean, I thought that was, I thought that was fascinating. I think, I think personally that's an isolated case. If I look at the developers we work with and they were batting 50 on, on a profitable project, I think they'd go out of business. <laughs> well, no? no, I said 20% they lost, 20% they nailed, and then the other the other 60, they had a decent okay. decent return. Yeah, so... Um, so who wow. knows? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, I'm looking out for, um, you know, the type of things to, to look for. Obviously when, when, when pricing went up 35% in a single year in 2017, I think I, I tweeted out, uh, what's the, uh, sweating nervously emoji, mm -hmm. uh, because I just, you just, you just knew you can't have that type of price growth and expect the market to continue in any, any, any sense of the sense of the word. I don't think I probably should have at the time used the word bubble and, yeah. and, and proclaimed it a bubble. Um, uh, and I didn't, but I knew it was bad. I mean, internally I was certainly advising the people that I work with that, uh, be very, very careful. I was on a panel. I think it was, uh, maybe two days after the, the fair housing plan was announced in, yeah. in April of, of 2017 at the land conference or one of the real estate forums. And I was on a panel with a bunch of guys and I was saying, you know, I would be very, very careful buying land right now. It just, it, it the, the, the values in the new um, low rise housing market made absolutely no sense in comparison to what the resale was going for. Like, why would I buy a $1.2 million townhome that's 1400 square feet when I could buy a 50 foot detached lot in the same, like right behind that community for like eight hundred and fifty thousand, right? Yeah. It made like no sense whatsoever, right? And then obviously we've seen. Lo and behold, we all saw what happened. Yeah, we've seen. You know, pricing has essentially trended downward for for two and a half years, right? right. Uh, and yes, part of that is the composition of the units that are in the mix. Uh, well, you know, developers are coming out with smaller product, uh, smaller lot sizes to appeal to a uh, more of a first time buyer. Uh, because you know a lot of, a lot of people in the resale market are worried about selling their existing home to move up to a to a new home so um, so they're trying to you know move back and and, and get some stack town homes and uh, and condo town homes and back to backs and suburban locations but unfortunately 
you know, as we know, this is a, again, it could be a completely uh, uh, a separate topic, but, you know, the NIMBYs are even fighting that, right? You think yeah. the NIMBYs are yeah. bad fighting condo towers in the city of Toronto, but single detached suburban NIMBYs are fighting developers on for townhomes and yeah. sack townhomes and in the burbs because they're like, oh, this, uh, you know, I wanted to be like where I moved out to the burbs to be in these big houses. I don't want these like affordable housing units in my community and bringing down my value. So, yeah. So, so, so if, if you had, so if in, in 2000 and, uh, what do you say, when, when would that have been? 2016, you had this, the sweating man emoji? Yeah, 2017. So, so, so what's yeah, your, what's your emoji for October, 2019? Well, I don't think I'm sweating. Obviously the market in Toronto and the resale market has returned. Uh, the, the good thing about, you know, obviously most of my business is in the, the high-rise apartment market, either rental or, or condominium. I do do some low-rise studies, but I was certainly nervous in, you know, pricing went up, you know, 30%, well, went up 10% in 2016, 30% in 2017, another 15% in 2018, right? It's just massive growth. We've, we've never seen that type of growth and not have a, a correction, right? Uh, so luckily the market has started to slow down. Um, just because you know, a lot of these investors are hold rent investors and, and uh, you know, there's absolutely no way they're going to be cash flow positive as pricing continues to go up at this type of pace because rents can't go up that much because people just don't have the money to, to rent these units. And, and again, yes, I've probably been saying that for 12 years and it continues to yeah. go up. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the things that are happening in the market to adjust, uh, you know, we're... You know, I was talking to a broker, and I think I've told this story a bunch of times, but a broker, and he, he owns uh, studio units. He would always rent it to a first, you know, someone just starting out and getting their first job or, you know, a single woman or, or whatever. And now he's renting these 350 square foot units to couples because wow. that's all they can afford. And, wow. and, uh, and he was saying one of his clients has a bunch of two-bedroom units, and he's rented them to couples. So one couple takes one bedroom, another couple takes the other bedroom, right? Wow. So yeah, so people just, just for an affordability reasons, they uh, you know they gotta jam themselves into. But, but is that uh, is that a, is that an indicator of a of a bubble, or is that an indicator of a developing city with a lot to offer, with a large financial uh, <coughs> hub, and you know a great safe place to visit as a tour as a tourist, a great safe place to move as an immigrant, and a place that's going to continue to grow? Because I think a lot of times. We get in this conversation, you know, prices are going up, there's got to be a bubble. Well, what about the fact that maybe this is just a really good place to live that people want to be and it's going to continue to grow for the next 25 yeah, years? And, and, and if you look at the major cities around the world, you know, we're hardly comparable. Our prices aren't comparable. Our size of the city geographically is not comparable. Well, potentially, I mean, if you look at New York, it's an island. A lot of major cities are, are sort of stuck on an island or restricted by... Uh, natural boundaries, like you look at Vancouver, they're, they're restricted ge geog mm -hmm. geographically by mountains and water and train systems. But you know, we, from a population standpoint, we're there. There is, I think, I was reading, I was listening to a to the new CEO of Starbucks. He was saying that there's a hundred cities in China, hundred cities in China that don't have a Starbucks, and every single one of those cities is larger than Los Angeles. Wow. That's oh, shocking. And they're right. looking, you know, their growth is China. Like they, 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 they need, you know, why, why are they not in all those markets, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a number of, there's, there's hundred, there's over a hundred cities in China that are bigger than Canada. Wow. 
So yeah. that's and not just, a stat. That's not yeah. a backed up stat. I don't know if, I don't know if it's a hundred <laughs> cities gotta, larger than Canada, or I know it's a hundred cities larger than yeah, than larger LA. than LA, larger than Canada would be Maybe pretty not. big. We have you know we got thirty million people here, but uh, yeah. you know just but, to get to get back to the, the you know kind of the, there's the, a number the, of cities that have thirty million people in China. Yeah. So just get back to the first question, you know. One of the one of the stats that always got brought up, always got brought up in the newspaper and all these articles was look at the price to rent ratio. Look at prices going up in comparison to rents. It's going up way faster. Therefore, it's a bubble, right? The problem was that you're looking at two completely different products, right? You're looking at singles, semis, rows, condo apartments, and they're all in, and we're building a lot of new ones. And then we compare it to rents, and with rents. And most of these major cities have rent control. So the maximum you can increase these things are one or one and a half percent per year, some of the major cities. So and then we weren't building hardly any rental buildings. So we weren't adding new product to the to that marketplace. So it's not gonna grow as quickly because you're not adding new, expensive, luxury product to that market, right? So you have to understand the the ins and, and outs of the data that you're looking at. But now, you know, now we're getting new new rental buildings getting built. I mean this it's Finally you know, happening. It's probably going to be in the three to six thousand units range, in, at least in the Toronto market. Um, and but we're we're the other thing is those those metrics never included condo rents. It only ever included purpose-built purpose rental built rental rent. apartments, and it never included condo rents. But you know people ignored that because they wanted to believe it was a, a bubble. But now that rents are going up ten to fifteen percent a year, you can't blame that on the foreign buyer. Right, it's not the foreign buyer that's buying these units. Someone will say, "Well, the foreign buyer bought it, and now they're renting it. And I need to cover their rent." But you know, so, so is the government completely to blame for high inf- high real estate prices? <sighs> I would say they're completely to blame uh, because I think that the the fundamentals uh, the fundamentals of economics and the supply and demand curve. I know from following you and listening to you, seem to make a lot of sense. But I don't know why that doesn't resonate with yeah. you know if we, if we had oversupplied the you know the demand would go down and the pricing would probably yeah, I mean, drop. I, but I mean, I mean, I've I've uh, I've been talking about supply and demand till I'm blue in the face, and and yes, there is it's 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 a very very complicated uh, problem, right? Like we look back to 2002, we were building more units then than we are today, right? Uh, but you know, you know. You know, people weren't driving in North Whitby and North Brampton and uh, the far suburbs of Woodbridge or South Milton at the time. So they just didn't see them like sprouting up like uh, like weeds in all those markets, like literally yeah. 25,000, uh, 30,000 completions for low, low density housing in a single year, just like absolutely enormous numbers. And so now, yes, we're delivering you know, 20, 25,000 condos, but we're only delivering, you know, 10, 12,000 low-rise homes. So we're building less total units. But the other point I always want to make is what's also, you can't just only look at the unit counts. You also have to look at square footage, right? right. So we're delivering almost 30,000 less square footage because those condo units are 700, four hundred, you know, anywhere from four hundred to three hundred, you know, yeah, yeah, a uh, thousand square feet. So they, they don't accommodate anywhere near the people. Off the right? top of your head, you have the stats on how many studio apartments are built being built now in comparison to five or ten years ago. Well, where it's stats, still, come on, stats it's, guy, it's stats still, guy. <laughs> it's still only like five percent of the market, right? That's it. So still only five percent of the market. But the one bedrooms are getting really, really small. We're seeing one bedrooms at four hundred and seventy-five square feet, four hundred and fifty square feet. We're seeing two bedrooms at five hundred and seventy square. feet. Feet, right, I'm saying three bedrooms at 740 square feet, right? Like just shockingly low numbers. I just 
I just did a market study in uh, in Guelph where the where the one bedrooms are 730 square feet, right? Wow. So I mean, it's just so completely different markets than um, um, than uh, than Toronto. But yeah, I mean, the the key is we're building a lot less bedrooms, a lot less square footage, but we're still getting. You know, you know, huge amounts of, uh, of people moving into the city, right? So we need to build more. But the other factor that I, I, I've talked about a lot, but, but people just they don't want to listen is... No one wants to listen to you. <laughs> well, well, actually, that's not true. <laughs> half, you, only half the people yeah, want to listen to you. If you made it to minute 47, thank you for continuing to listen. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with some good stuff here. This but, is it. Uh, this, is, this is what we all want to for. Like when you, were, when, you were do, when you were doing all that land servicing, you're doing it in, in, in far suburban places where the land is extremely cheap in comparison to, to urban land you're building a stick frame building which is has has a, a significantly lower cost than a, than a concrete building you are your risk is essentially lower because the demand is strong and and you can put up one of these houses in nine months or, or less uh, um, and and now for a high-rise building you know you're there's a cost to assemble that lot. You've got the risk of this is a, a four, five, seven-year project. So it's, so it's additional financing costs. Wait, and so, then, you, I, so you're telling me that developers have to take risks too? Uh, yeah, yeah. So they're taking some extreme risks. And everyone, everyone, when the market's going really strong, like all oh, developers are, they're, you know, they're 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 charging too much. They could charge us less. And I'm like, yeah. How about you take a personal guarantee out on your house and see? Uh, <laughs> see well, why don't you put your name? What you, what you sign personally? for a $350 million construction loan and see how you sleep at night. Listen, I will say one other thing on the on the risk thing and as far as the disconnect that I think a lot of... that, that many people, many Torontonians, I'll say, have on, on this market. And I th- there's, there's two things that are, that are important to note. Number one, from a lending standpoint, no bank, no financial institution, and no group, either privately or uh, institutionally, will lend money to any developer who's not making money. There has to be a healthy profit margin in the deal, or the deal doesn't get done. And I think that gets overlooked far, far more than it's. It's never talked about. It's never talked about that. Oh, they're so greedy. They need. You know, they're so greedy. They have a nice car. They're so rich. That has nothing to do with it. In fact, it's the complete opposite. This business is so capital intensive that it actually weeds out 99% of the population for being in the business. And you only get to that point by taking a tremendous amount of risk and you won't get any financing and you, and you can't grow your business to create that capital unless you're making money. You can't walk in, like I used earlier an example of the TD Bank, you can't walk into the TD Bank and say, I'm gonna build a 100 unit condominium building and I'm gonna make 2% profit or 3% profit or 5% profit. They'll laugh you out of their office. You mm-hmm. cannot do it. They're, the only way for this business to keep going is for there to be profitable projects because that profit builds a nice contingency, a nice margin, a nice buffer that does allow for error. And there is error and there is unforeseen circumstances in this business all the time. When you buy a piece of land and you think it's going to take you two years to take it through the approval process of the city and that two years is going to cost you X dollars in interest and then all of a sudden it takes you four years and you're X times two in interest, the cost of your project have just gone up and your profit margin has just gone down. Mm-hmm. If, you had a, if you had a 3% margin, you'd be underwater already and you haven't even put a shovel in the ground. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that is really something that is overlooked all the time as far as yeah, yeah, there's a lot of money in this business, but there is an extreme 
extraordinarily high, high, high level of risk that these individuals are taking to build these buildings. Yeah. Yeah. And it is very complicated. It takes a long time and there's a lot of costs that go into it. And, and on the cost side of things, as you know, the reason, you know why prices are going up? Because costs are, just like prices are up 30%, costs are up 30%. Mm-hmm. You know, the cost of steel in the city of Toronto is up probably 30 to 40% than over 18 months ago. The cost of uh, t- timber is up. The cost of windows and doors has gone up. The cost of elevators is way up. Drywall, that is one of the, you know, the most scarce trades. The cost of drywall, in, in just the, the hard drywall is up. It drives the price up of, of the, you know where that you know where that goes it goes it goes to the end buyer yeah and and yeah. yeah the price of a condo is up but costing is up and you know look at what's going on on uh, trade wars with our our border our, our neighbors to the south but not just our neighbors to the south imports from China are also up and it's made it very very hard to control costs and when you're costing out when you buy a piece of land and you're not costing out your your uh, concrete for four years. You're taking a lot of speculation risk. Yeah. Going back to the risk that they're taking, they're saying, "Yeah, I'm going to pay X for a ton of concrete." A lot can change in four years. Government can change. Trade laws can change. Uh, supply and uh, availability of the trade and, and the resource can yeah. change. Yeah. So, so, so I I have conversations all the time, and and people I always see people on Twitter say, "Well, the market's the market," you know, and I said, "Well, that's not actually the case, right?" Like someone will come to me and say, "Ben." I need to know what the value of this, this, what can I sell these units for? And I say, okay, based, conservatively speaking, based off of these, you know, X comparables in the marketplace, I think you can sell this at $1,240 a square foot. And they'll come back to me and say, Ben, I can't, I can't make any money on that, right? Like that's, that would give me a 3% margin. I got to sell that 1325. Can I sell this at 1325? <laughs> right? I see this all the time. And I have to come back to them and say, I think you're really pushing it here, and yeah. uh, you'd be taking a huge amount of risk. And 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 some of them say, well, you know, that's that's what I have to do, right? So they've and they, they're now setting a new. They set a new market high, and at, at some some sites, the, the that that market high doesn't work. The investors say, absolutely not. We're not going to support that that price, right? So you got to go back to the drawing board and and do something to try to make the uh, make the project yeah, work. You know what either. they need to do? They need to go back to the city and they need to get more density. In order to get more <laughs> density, they have to go back through the planning process. They have to go back to the neighbors. They have to go back to the city council, and that process is another two or three years. So. Yeah, the project doesn't. There's there's no profitability profitability at that level at those price points. So in a lot of cases, they didn't get enough density, and they didn't get enough density because the density they were going for got cut back by the city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know, I talk about you know, I've said it a million times on on Twitter. Cost push inflation. It, it happens in every industry, and 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 the the condo industry is no different. And then you know, the the, the economist will come back and say, well. You know, if there's increasing costs, then they should pay less for land, right? Yeah. Which, which we know is just you just you know any vendor you go to them and say, you know what, my costs are up, so I'm going to have to ask you to take a 25 percent uh, cut on what you're asking for this land. So that works, right? Yeah. Well, when you talk to <laughs> when I talk to all my all my buddies in the uh, on the on the uh, investment sales side from Colliers, for example, uh, it would be some great guests. You know, we've got a couple of those guys in here, but. They're saying that the the land owners and the sellers, you know, the uneducated, unsophisticated, I don't mean that they're uneducated, I just mean they're uneducated in in the development business, are asking astronomical numbers for for land these days. They know enough to know that their land is probably worth, 
X and they're asking X plus plus plus. So it's mm-hmm. it, it's a push on both sides, and they're definitely not willing to take a haircut. Yeah, I mean, for sure. land is land is gold in this city, right? And there's there's no reason for them to. Uh, you know, uh, they're not saying, okay, the market's going to crash. I better sell as quickly no. as possible, right? And no. a lot of them have holding income, right? So Absolutely. It's, or they run their business out of there and they're completely fine. Yeah. And they're so, patient. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the issue. with, And this market is so competitive with developers. Essentially, if you don't overpay, you're not going to get this piece of land. And you're not going to be in business anymore, yeah. right? Exactly. So so if someone wants to email me, email you or get in contact with you, maybe yeah, just do a yeah, quick... Yeah, for sure. I uh, would uh, lo- love to hear from you. Like I said, you can find me on Twitter at, at the one Stevie C. Uh, my email address is scameron at cameronstevens.com, C-A-M-E-R-O-N-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we're going to be bringing a level of... Uh, highest level of top-notch guests you could imagine on this podcast so if you have any guests that you want us to reach out to you're going to hold up the financing for them until they come on the podcast no one actually i'm writing it into all of our mortgage commitments going forward if you want to borrow money (laughs) you you owe ben and i 40 minutes and you must be entertaining you must not be boring and give the your your uh, some of your forum answers (laughs) i'm kidding no no forum answers we love the we love the forum uh you can catch me at um um ben Myers, Myers 29. 29. I am. Why the 29? Uh, 29 was my favorite number. number? Yeah, my number? favorite number. My my favorite player as a kid was Jesse Barfield. He was 29. I'm I was born February 9th, so it was uh, you know 29. So that was kind of how that came about. And there's surprisingly a lot of Ben Myers out there in the world. So there's really? uh, there's a, a lot name. of them. A lot of them on Twitter. So. All right. Thank you for tuning into uh, Toronto under construction. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. 